Today's episode is brought to you by Relevant Digital, proudly presenting Relevant Yield. Hey, publishers and sales networks, ever dreamed of managing pre-bid without breaking a sweat? How about real-time performance analytics, total SSP control, consolidated revenue reporting, and overall efficiency to supercharge your ad sales? Well, dream no more. Introducing Relevant Yield, the unified platform for programmatic sellers an independent solution that develops with the industry trends, showing you the way to the bright media sales future. Get to know us, and soon you'll wonder how you got along without. And here's the kicker. Mention this podcast, and we'll send you the trendiest socks in town. Learn more by visiting relevantyield.com. Welcome to the AdTech God Pod, your window into the world of advertising technology and the people behind it. I'm your host, AdTech God. Welcome, AdTech enthusiasts, to another episode of the AdTech God Pod. I'm your host, AdTech God. In the beginning, there was uncharted digital world, a vast expanse waiting to be discovered and shaped. Into this world stepped a visionary. He's most renowned for his significant contributions to the digital advertising industry, particularly through his role in the invention of programmatic advertising. He co-founded AppNexus and served as its CEO until its sale to AT&T for $1.6 billion. In 2018, Brian O'Kelly, not just a name, but a force of change in the digital world, is now the co-founder and CEO of Scope3, a groundbreaking venture focused on reshaping the digital advertising landscape through sustainability. Scope3 is a testament to his commitment to integrating environmental responsibility into the tech world. At Scope3, Brian and his team are dedicated to providing accurate data on supply chain emissions, particularly in digital advertising, thereby contributing to a more sustainable and environmentally conscious digital environment. I feel like I am in the presence of God himself. Brian, welcome to the AdTech God Pod. Thank you so much for having me. Entirely too kind. And I just want to complain in the beginning that I wore my Captain Planet t-shirt just for this. And there's I no saw video. that. I felt bad. Yeah, there's no video yet, but I am working with someone who I met through X that, as I mentioned before, that will be able to automate my image. So when that happens, it'll be fun. Well, I'm glad I didn't put the makeup on because I would have been really upset. This is much easier to take off. I still hope you're wearing a shirt right now. I, I am, as far okay, as you know. Okay, good. That's, yeah, or else we'd start getting tips and Venmos. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for being here, by the way, Brian. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I, I love what you've been building. Your community is really, really helpful. And I, I just think it's important for the industry to, to come together. So I really, I'm really glad to be part of what you're building. I'm always shocked by who accepts my invitations and who asks to be on the podcast. But so far, it, it seems to be incredibly popular and I'm loving every moment of it. Brian, so you founded Programmatic Advertising. You started Programmatic Advertising. I usually start with why did you get into ad tech? But just a question for you is, why did you create AdTech? What, what motivated you to create what the industry is really built on today? I think what's always been exciting to me is building technology that actually helps people solve problems. I guess really businesses, because I've always worked for clients that are companies, probably to the, the detriment of the consumer experience of the internet. But especially if you go back 20 years to when the internet was just scaling, you know, not everybody had a computer, you know, certainly not everyone had a broadband connection. 
computers were really slow compared to how fast they are now. There's just this massive technical problem of how do we build infrastructure that could scale with the internet? And then there's a question of how do we choose which ad to serve somebody? Very early in my career, I had just gotten interested in this one-to-one idea of the internet. Like the internet was going to allow all content to be personalized to every person. And this was this massive concept in the late 90s. And so as I got further and further into what is an ad and what is an ad network and how does this all work? I guess I just was like, well, why don't we serve a different ad to every person? And what would the infrastructure look like? And how could we predict that? And how would we make this happen in a fair way? And, you know, one thing led to another. I don't think I ever said like, I'm going to invent <laughs> programmatic. That's kind of amazing because, you know, things that you said become such standard for us at this point. How do we serve the ad? Where do we serve the ad? How do we serve different creative to each user? How do we understand more about the users and, and deliver a, a relevant ad to them? But when you started this, none of it really existed. No one really focused on the individual or the audience you were targeting. What kind of challenges were you facing when initially starting programmatic in terms of adoption, in terms of acceptance from, from the market? I'll just give you an example. There's this sales guy, because you know, Right Media was an ad network at first, and his name was Ramsey McGrory. He's now you know, number two at Media Ocean, great person. But we were trying to sell performance ads to agencies. And one of the challenges was like, imagine cost per click ad where someone's going to pay a dollar per click. We didn't really have any technology in the beginning. So we'd call a publisher and say, give us some inventory and be on a rev share. But we didn't know how well it would perform for this ad. And so what Ramsey would do is he'd actually send an IO to the agency at many different prices. He'd send them a, an IO for 10 cents or 20 cents or 30 cents or 40 cents or 50 cents or 60 cents. And then we would basically run the ad and try to figure out which price point would actually get the best click rate. And the reason it was complicated was because different prices would get different inventory from the publisher. Like we'd actually have to, we basically were doing header bidding by hand in 2004. I'm kind of laughing because that sounds like a nightmare. It's crazy. But it was header bidding. It's just we didn't know what we were doing. So the poor publisher would have to get a phone call, probably from me, to say, hey, can you <laughs> just put in three more line items at different price points? And so I said to Ramsey, like, why don't we just do this in the ad server? Like, why don't I just automatically find the right price? And he's like, that's sacrilege. You know, agencies need to know the price of every ad. And I was like, well, why? Like, you're giving them an IO where they don't know what price it's going to be. He's like, yeah, but they, they, they're not going to accept, like, they're not going to trust us to choose the price. Now, since I wasn't from advertising, I was like, but Ramsey, they are trusting us to choose the price. We had this big fight. I finally was just like, I'm building it. And so we invented dynamic CPM. Now, you haven't seen a DCPM deal in like 10 years because every deal is now DCPM. This is how we think about price, is that the price of every single ad will change. But that was so crazy to propose this that we had to have a fight about it. And of course, we, we did successfully convince the industry that biddable media should have a, a dynamic price. But think about how you could build all of these auctions if you couldn't change the price of the ad to the agency. So that's just a very small example of the number of things that had to change and evolve to make this an industry, right? It was just changing the way that people thought about pricing. It, it just sounds like so much work. It's at this point, it's it's like you said, you don't you don't really hear about dynamic CPMs. It just is what it is. It's 
you give them a budget, you give them a CPM rate, and then you optimize against that CPM rate and try to deliver whatever KPI or return on investment for your client and really done. But it's become such a standard in our industry. I, I couldn't imagine sending an IO with, with 10 different line items, different CPMs, and then at the end of the month, figuring out how to bill. Yeah, but it's basically what we're doing with header bidding. Like we're basically right. saying to all the, we've got, we've gone nowhere. You know, we act like this is all how it is, but like the idea that we're still sending, you know, asking publishers to implement like a thousand lines in their ad server to deal with all this complexity. So sometimes it just shocks me, like how far we've come and how we've gone nowhere at all. And I think one thing that frustrates me is that because I remember the time before, you know, like you're not the first anonymous person who's built a community in this industry. Attic Danger was started by an anonymous person who would go around and interview people, you know, and of course we found out who he was, you know, Sleeping Giants, you know, was a whole movement of anonymous people. Like, I just think it's funny when you start seeing the patterns and you see it happen again and again, and you're like, well, it's going to happen again. Like, this is not the end of the cycle. This is just the end of this cycle. So that's really fun for me. Sometimes I can pattern match in ways that, you know, everyone else takes for granted. You know, it's, it's funny on the anonymous part. I, I didn't know that's how Ad Exchanger started until six or seven months ago. So at least I have some goals set ahead of me. That's turned out to be one heck of a, a company. So it's, it's pretty amazing. What with the cycle, kind of the, the circle of life in, in advertising and in our technologies and the trends that we're seeing across kind of connected TV as it relates to how it was maybe in web and mobile a few years ago. What direction do you see it moving in? And, and what do you think is really going to be groundbreaking change that's going to get us out of this sort of repetitive cycle that we see? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things that have held true. One is that the largest platforms in terms of consumer intention build their own ad platforms. You know, 20 years ago, Yahoo had their own ad stack and AOL had their own ad stack and Microsoft had their own ad stack. Search, of course, is still that way. And then anybody below like the top 10 or 15 properties has to go outside for help. And if you look at like Netflix today, they're right on the fringe of like being big enough to build their own ad platform. But like maybe, maybe not. Like, is it actually a good investment? And you see some of the, you know, like Spotify's of the world who have built self-serve, successful self-serve businesses. But it's a question, right? Like Washington Post tried didn't really quite work because they weren't quite big enough. And so one thing I think about the next decade is consumer content consumption will change dramatically, but we have no idea how. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think we can bet against linear at this point. I think we can bet on <laughs> like streaming and CTV and fast happening. But if you think about what AI does to content consumption and what AI does to consumers, I don't think we know. I don't think the web is the future, but I, I also don't know what is the future. So from an ad tech lens, which is, of course, what really matters, right? I mean, consumer consumption is great, media and all that, but like ad tech's where it's at. How do you build an ad tech model when you don't know what the model needs to serve? You know, when mobile apps came along, it was mediation and it was like CPA gaming ads. But that's actually not what programmatic works well for. So programmatic kind of missed mobile. Well, what's next? So that, that consumer cycle is what drives everything. And then as an industry, we react to that. And I think being 
really flexible, like having, you know, not being so doubled down or tripled down into the legacy programmatic mindset is the only way to approach the next decade. Because I don't think anybody has an idea of, of where we will be 10 years from now. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel that the, the rise of AI obviously will change the way content is created and delivered, customized. Obviously, there's benefits to the way it optimizes and improves performance on your campaigns. I agree with you. Linear is still a massive business that, that generates billions a year. Connected TV is definitely the future. I've, I've had multiple conversations with close friends of mine saying, you know how you see those guys that have been in television for the last 40 years and they live a very good life and you think to yourselves, how did they even get into TV in the 1970s and 80s? And now look at them, how well they're living. Well, that's going to be us. So we got to keep going forward with CTV, stick to it as a, as a core strength build your knowledge. And 30 years from now, we're going to look when we're in our 60s and 70s, and we're going to say we lived a great life and watched the rise of connected TV, just like these guys rose with, with cable and linear. AI is obviously a super hot topic. So is what your company does, Scope 3. The environment, and I mentioned this yesterday, or this will probably be a few weeks after I've mentioned it on X, but Obviously, the environment is something that I care about. Someone with children, I, I really do care that they live a good, healthy life with a healthy environment around them. What is Scope 3 doing today to help the environment, to help these technology platforms do their part? Yeah, I think your basic concept that like our greatest stewardship as adults is to leave the world a better place for our kids in every way is what motivates me. I think about the fact that I've had a little bit of an influence on how the internet works over the past 20 years. I'm not totally sure that influence is leaving the internet in a better place in every way. I look at all the consent pop-ups that I see and I'm like, you know, having 800 different, you know, ad tech vendors in your consent pop-up, I feel like we've done a really good job of building business models for ad tech. I'm not sure we've done so great of a job in consumer experience. And that translates directly to what's the environmental impact of having all of these different servers and all this data sitting around and all this complexity. So everything I said about, you know, figuring out how to do dynamic pricing and dropping thousands of line items into servers to, to find the perfect ad for the perfect person, there's a lot of servers being used and a lot of energy being used to serve ads. And we're funding a lot of content that probably isn't particularly valuable for consumers. So yeah, so scope three is basically the brainchild of how could we quantify the environmental impact of advertising? At least for now, the impact on media. There's also talk about, you know, how does advertising influence consumer behavior towards consumerism and, you know, purchasing high carbon items. I think that's important to think about too. And that's something we're doing right this second. But yeah, I think this is my little attempt to kind of use everything I know about the ad tech ecosystem and the way the internet works, how it's monetized and how big brands think and operate to kind of reverse the economic cycle that's been so powerful where a lot of value aggregate to the middle. And I wonder 
if that value should aggregate differently if you price effectively a price and externality. If you think of the carbon impact as an externality that should be priced in, what would this market look like if it were carbon aware? <laughs> so I don't pitch that to people. I'm not like, let's make everything you know nudged a little bit to take a, a, you know account for carbon. That, that's effectively what we're doing. We're trying to get all these behaviors on a global scale to make slightly different decisions based on the environmental impact. And what happens, and we're seeing this at massive scale now, is the carbon footprint of the internet is going down. Like it's going down measurably and significantly. It's not only because of scope three. I think we've done a really good job of highlighting MFA. You know, we did this study in January with Ubiquity where we came out that 15.6% of spend by brands was going to MFA sites. If that didn't freak people out, I don't know what will. You know, and all this focus from the industry on this, well, we don't really make money from it, but I think it's part of our mission is to highlight things that are really inefficient and ineffective. So, you know, all of which is a long way of saying, I'd love to find ways to, to help this community of smart, brilliant, wonderful people in ad tech and use all of our creativity and all of our resources to find ways to decarbonize the internet and preserve monetization and preserve effectiveness for advertisers and improve the consumer experience. Like we can do this. We've done much harder things like dynamic pricing. If we can do that, we can do anything. I guess that's my idea. Yeah. And I, what you're saying makes sense. And I think efficiencies or driving efficiencies are obviously going to reduce the carbon footprint just on its own in, in the first place. Are, are you finding a lot of these bigger companies taking action and recognizing this as an opportunity to improve their business plus reduce their carbon footprint? Or are you finding some pushback or just general you know, lack of understanding? Or are you seeing a lot of companies kind of adopting this and saying, you know, we should definitely do our part? In Cannes, I heard Mark Pritchard speak at an event for CMOs. And he said that our first motivation as a company is to deliver value for our consumer and to gain share in our category. Like that is my job as a marketer is market share. And I want to do that as sustainably as possible. I think that's the right order of priority. So when we talk to marketers, especially big brands, what we talk about is, yes, it's great to be green. And it only makes business sense if you can do this in a way that's good for your actual marketing effectiveness. So to me, that's critically important. And if we walk into brands and just say, you should be green for the sake of being green, we don't get laughed out of the room, but we don't see significant change. I think one of the challenges for us is that if you start pointing out inefficiencies in any ecosystem, you start rubbing people the wrong way. And so I think our, our biggest challenge sometimes is that we don't think that anyone's doing the wrong thing on purpose. You know, talked to a, a company last week that was like, yeah, well, we didn't turn on an inclusion list in DV360 yet. And I was like, you really should. You know, that'll have a huge impact. They're like, yeah, just ha we just haven't gotten around to it. And so I said, well, let me measure the carbon footprint of what you're doing. And then you're going to want to, right? Everyone knows they should. But if I can use carbon as a way to help do that, and in so doing, we can dramatically reduce the carbon footprint. We can dramatically increase the effectiveness of those campaigns because they're running, I guarantee it, on a bunch of stuff that they probably don't want to and that their clients don't want to. 
that to me is the is the perfect instantiation of this. It's someone who hadn't made it a priority yet, and we can help make it a priority. We can inform what they're doing with data. We can deliver real business value, and we can give them a story to tell about how green and how effective their platform is. So that's the best case for me, is when we can find sort of an obvious, almost unintentional mistake or, or something that we can, we can help fix. It gets a little more contentious when people are like, you know, we don't buy MFA. I'm like, okay, like, I hope you don't. What if we find some, you know, or no, we have a tight inclusion list. You saw the ANA study that came out last week and it's like, you know, brands are having 40,000 sites on their inclusion list. It's like, well, something's missing here. Like either you are getting tricked or you're not actually rolling this out the way you think. So those are the kind of disconnects that I am trying to help everyone find. And if you weren't willing to find it for money or for brand safety or for whatever else, maybe it's somebody else's money. Maybe it's someone else's, but it's your planet. And that's the part that I think is unique about where we are as an industry is it's everyone's planet. I've never met anyone who doesn't care. I've only met people who care. They just want to know what the business rationale is or how hard it's going to be or what it's going to cost. And that's my job as an entrepreneur is to help people understand it's not that expensive. It's not that hard. And you can do it right now without really changing much of anything. I think people fear its potential impact on revenue or profits. But the way, the way you explained it to me now that something as simple as a tighter inclusion list, removal of MFA sites, really being aware where your dollar is being spent and finding the most efficient path does benefit the environment and does reduce your carbon footprint. But I don't think everybody knows that unless they have the opportunity to sit down and talk to you or someone at Scope 3 or, or similar companies. And I think you just explaining it to me goes, okay, that, that makes sense. So if I am running on an inclusion list of 40,000, even reducing it to 30,000 makes a big difference and improves my carbon footprint. So that's pretty amazing. You've had one heck of a career. I mean, selling to at t you've launched an amazing kind of industry leading company like Scope 3. So you definitely have a lot of highlights and a lot of major milestones, but what would you say in your opinion is, is the biggest milestone, the biggest success that you could look back, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now and say, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm just so proud of, of doing that. I think that every time I look back at the last 20 years, I think about people, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, made a lot of money from app nexus and, you know, put their kids through college or put a down payment on a house or an apartment. But I hope that's not the impact that they remember. And, and when I meet app nexus people, they, they talk about what a special place it was to work about an environment built around learning and teaching a leadership team that was really committed to doing the right thing. We weren't perfect. We made mistakes, but it was really, really important even from early on that we try to make the internet a better place, that we had this responsibility to do that. And so I think for me, there was a day where we kicked Breitbart off the platform. It was so controversial. It was in 2016, right after the election. Everyone was so upset. And employees came to me and said, you know, this is hate speech. Like we have a hate speech policy. Why aren't we enforcing it? And I was so skeptical. I did not want to <laughs> rock the boat. We were trying to go public and, you know, get acquired. And the last thing we needed was, you know, a controversial, potentially political statement. And 
they, they presented actually a bunch of evidence, like articles on Breitbart, basically comparing Muslims to cockroaches and, and just, just stuff that was absolutely awful, you know, inciting violence against people and against immigrants. And I sat in my conference room for hours, just reading through it, thinking about it, researching like other companies, hate speech policies, violent speech policies. And I guess I just realized like, I had to do it. Like if, if you have a policy and you don't enforce it, if you say I stand for, you know, free speech and for safe speech, and you don't block or kick people out who violate those policies, like you're, you're, you're just, you're playing the game, you know, and to your point about, you know, oh my gosh, doing the right thing for the environment and, you know, doing the right thing for my client, it'll hurt my revenue. Well, when you look at yourself in the mirror that night, or you try to explain to your kids what you do at work and you say, well, mainly I do the right thing, except when I really need the money. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And so I walked out of my office and I said, we're doing this. We're, we're banning Breitbart. I was terrified. I had to call Sir Martin Sorrell and tell him because I'm sure he's going to be pissed because they were a major investor and client. And he was like, well, okay. So you're saying we can no longer buy it? Like you're basically kicking Zaxxas off of Breitbart? And I was like, well, you can buy it through Google because Google you know, hasn't made this step. He's like, okay. So you're willing to have me buy it through Google if I need it. And I was like, look, you should ban it too. But if you're going to buy it, yeah, buy it through Google. That would make me feel good. I would rather you did that. And then for the next few days after we did it, I was like watching revenue, expecting it to drop. People are going to fire us. This is horrible. But it didn't. And in fact, this is right when Sleeping Giant started. And all of a sudden, over the next 12 months, thousands of advertisers banned Breitbart. I mean, the first few companies was like AppNexus, Kellogg, you know, and I think there are five others who are the first round of seven. And every time I'd see our name up there as one of the very first companies to ban Breitbart, I was so proud of myself and of the company. Employees would walk up to me, you know, and say like, I'm so proud to work here. I just went and told my parents over Christmas and like how, how much I appreciate working for a company that has these standards. You know, and I know that Twitter finally banned Trump like four years later, you know, and they got around to it. And of course they let him back on. But I, I guess for me, that's the kind of decision that makes me feel like you know, even though I'm not sure we changed the world, I think, I guess I'm proud of that. And I think, you know, the, the, the fact that maybe we sold for less money or we, you know, scared people off or whatever, like, I, I guess I'd rather do the right thing and fail and feel good about myself than just make it about the money and end up rich and, you know, corrupt. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think that that is the right way. It, it's being an anonymous account is hard. There are times where I want to jump out of my seat and tell the world, like, it's me, it's me. Look at this, look at this. But I also realize that there's a there's an allure and a mystique to it. And the fact that I'm able to kind of extend a hand out to help, whether it's finding a job, whether it's giving them resources, whether it's training links and, and documents that people need just to, to better themselves, it's worth it. I understand the risks involved, but at the same time, I sleep better at night. Brian, just like you do after kicking them off the platform. So I, I, I don't think you could ever go wrong doing the right thing, maybe short term, but long term, I think people will benefit from making the right decision. And that decision usually happens just from your gut. You just know, like, this is just the right thing to do. I'm going to do it. I don't care what the impact is. It's the right thing. And it's going to help me sleep at night. I work with wonderful people. Like at AppNexus, there are so many good people 
Like I would love to say that I came up with that decision myself, but I got to work with people who were smart and passionate and cared. You know, I just want to say like, thank you to everyone at AppNexus and everyone at Scope 3 who makes doing the right thing part of the job and not something you do <laughs> when you can. I agree. I, I, I think a unanimous choice at a company is always a good choice. I think even if it was just your decision, it's a good choice. But the fact that you had multiple people support you and agree with you kind of solidifies that decision a lot. I kind of go into the next part as, as we go into educational resources. People in the industry are obviously seeing a major shift in the market. Jobs seem to kind of be rebounding a little bit. I'm seeing more and more people finding work, but there's still a lot of people looking for work. I mean, what advice can you give to people who want to enter this industry or in the industry that want to shift roles or grow in their careers? What kind of advice do you give people that are listening today? I think that there's a lot of great resources out there. We are curating them on our website and you know, would love to share with anybody who's looking for a curriculum. So, you know, there's podcasts, there's reports. It's easy to get overwhelmed. I think there it's probably worth everyone reading at least one decent climate book about like how the climate works and how these pieces all fit together. So you can educate yourself and understand all the dots that connect. And anyone who wants to reach out, I'm happy to share a few of my favorites. I think in the industry, so much of what we're talking about is just good hygiene. You know, th this is not rocket science. This is, this is about just really knowing where you spend money. And if you are taking people's money, just being a really good steward of it. And there have been many, many efforts by so many people to try to clean up the ad tech industry and especially programmatic. I would just encourage everyone to be really skeptical about greenwashing and about people making green claims. We've opened our methodology. It's open source methodology.scope3.com mainly to get people's feedback and criticism. Because I don't think we can do this in a vacuum. I don't think anyone should say, oh, wow, Brian's so smart. He's done all these things. He must be a climate expert. That's not going to work. Like We need to do this together. Appreciate that you have a sustainability channel on your adtech.slack. Folks should join that. There's WhatsApp groups about sustainability in the UK. On There's an adtech community there. All, all these things are ways for folks to share knowledge, to learn together, and, and to you know kind of have this like, community mindset. Let's figure this out. And going back, by the way, to the ad exchanger experience, like ad exchanger evolved organically. Like what you're building is evolving organically around curious people who want to figure out how to make this industry better. I think that's the real answer to your question is the more we learn together, the more this is a collaborative effort by the whole industry, the more likely it succeeds. Thank you. I, I think so too. I mean, this thing's evolved so much in the last three years. I know, I know we've, we've interacted for for what feels like years at this point, Brian, but it definitely shifted about a year and a half ago where I, I was faced with this dilemma. I can really go down two different paths. The, the first path is I can talk a little bit of trash here and there and just stick to it and point out all the bad in the industry, or I can see the bad, make it aware, make it more aware to the audience, but really address the core of what I care about which is not the tech, which, which is really the people. And so making sure everybody is educated, employed, networked, and able to help each other is where I leaned in very, very hard. And I feel like that makes me feel pretty satisfied in what I do every day. 
running this account. Last question for you is uh, what direction do you see things heading in? We're, we're kind of finishing off right now. We're finishing off the year, but we'll be maybe a month into the new year when this launches. Well, what trends are you kind of going to see in 2024, the industry in 2024 that that's worth talking about? Well, I mean, the, the only topic for next year is going to be topics and protected audiences and the privacy sandbox and what happens to Chrome. I feel like we've kicked the can so many times on cookies. I've heard so many people say to me, Google's going to you know, do it a year later because like, they haven't gotten alignment with the CMA, blah, blah, blah. I think that this is going to happen. I, I don't think that cookies are going to survive very long. And I think that companies who haven't really committed to a post-cookie strategy are going to be in serious trouble. I don't know that there's much else that's going to get on the radar next year. It's going to impact almost every single business, the attribution side of it, possibly more than measurement. So I think that's the, the big topic. I think the second thing that I'm following is how does AI impact search? Because to a large extent, a lot of the consumer web that we're all used to is downstream of search. And I think the evolution of AI is going to make it just a different path to getting knowledge and definitely a different path to getting product knowledge. And so I think that we're going to see just a different chat first experience or a, or a question and answer kind of internet that don't think most publishers are really prepared for, or maybe they can't be prepared for. So all of that just feels like we're entering a really chaotic 2024, a lot of, of shifts, a lot of confusion. And I, I think it just is critical for folks to recognize that the skill set and the knowledge that we all have is not tied to this cycle. Like, yes, we know programmatic. Yes, we understand how the, how the world works. The next cycle is going to be different and similar. And we have a skill set and a community and a set of relationships that are super relevant if we can see past whatever this, you know, almost like a singularity is around cookies. I'm a little terrified of 2024 because it's hard to predict, but I'm also super excited. I'm so tired of waiting for cookies to go away. In 2018, we sold AppNexus in like August. It was May of 2018 when GDPR hit. If you told me five plus years ago that cookies were still sticking around, I would have been shocked. And so I'm ready. Let's, let's, let's find out what the future's like. Let, let's get through this and move on and, uh, and build a new ad tech ecosystem on a different foundation. All I, all I say to that is buckle up, learn, network, educate yourself, be flexible. I agree with you. I feel like the stuff that we're doing today, and I, I said this to Joe Zawatsky when he was on the podcast, I said, you know, I feel like we're just doing the same things over and over again sometimes. Like the same trends we're seeing in, in connected TV, the, the scale and the growth of adoption, the shifting of dollars towards connected TV, very similar to what we saw with web and mobile app. The unbelievable amount of fraudulent inventory, we saw that in mobile web and mobile app, connected TV. The reselling world, we saw the same thing across all those devices. We keep repeating the same cycle. And I feel like with the invention of you know AI and the utilization of AI in our industry is really going to drive innovation outside of what we're comfortable with. And, and in my own view, I'm really excited for it to change because I feel like it's just been the same repetitive thing over and over again. Yes, technologies have gotten better. Yes, efficiencies have improved. 
you know, we're still waiting for the right type of measurement solution. We're still waiting for a post cookie solution. We continue to drive ourselves nuts with the reselling market. It's time. Let's head down the right path and build something that is not only sustainable for the environment, but something that's sustainable for the industry that really drives value for our advertisers and for our publishers. So I'm, I'm excited for 2024, but definitely buckle up is what I tell myself all the time. Totally, totally agree. <laughs> Lean in and buckle up. Yep. I, I'm, you know, patience and a lot of meditation, Brian, just a lot of meditation. Awesome. Well, I mean, this ends our podcast. You've, you've been an amazing guest and, and thank you again for, for trusting me and being on this podcast with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And please keep up the amazing work you're doing. It's a privilege to be part of your community and uh, look forward to seeing where you take it in 2024. Thank you, Brian. Same here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the AdTech GodPod, a podcast for the people about the people that make AdTech great. Stay connected with me for more insights, trends, and interviews in the realm of ad tech. Don't miss out on our latest updates. So follow me on X, Instagram, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Don't forget, ATG Slack community has insights, networking opportunities, and jobs. Keep the conversation going and stay at the forefront of ad tech innovation.